There's crispy, and then there's crispy, er. Try our new and improved Tyson crispy chicken strips. Crispy just got crispy, er. We are always taught that we should just be happy if we're. Seeing progress being made, but after 400 years on these soils, I just feel like the time for incremental progress is over. We deserve equality. Hello, everyone. You're listening to HBCU 468, the Roden Fellows Podcast, where we talk about sports and culture from the perspective of HBCU students. I'm Bill Roden. And I'm on the line with my co-host, East Dockery from North Carolina A&T State University, and Randy Williams from Hampton University. How are you guys doing? I'm doing great. What's going on, Bill? It's all good. It's that time of year again. It's bowl game time, celebration bowl game time, to be specific. In a few weeks, two HBCU football teams, the best of the Middle Eastern Athletic Conference and the best from the Southwestern Athletic Conference will go head to head at the Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta. This year feels like deja vu. The reigning champion, the North Carolina Anti-Aggies, will go against the Alcorn State Braves for the second year in a row. The Aggies are repping the MEAC and have an eight and three record. They've also won the bowl game three times. In fact, they've won so many times that folks. Joke that the event should be renamed the Aggie Bowl. The Alcorn State Braves are holding it down for the SWAC after going nine and three during the regular season. So let's hear some predictions.、Uh, can Alcorn upset NCANT, better known as NCAT? What do you think, Randall? Bill, no, I'm a realist and I just don't see it happening.、Uh, North Carolina A&T, they've won the last two for a reason, and I know East is probably going to agree with me. But and, and that's all due respect to Alcorn, but I go with history until until,、uh, until something changes. So、uh, I'm going with NCAT, and they'll probably take it three years in a row. Yeah, of course I'm agree with Randall, but the only way they can defeat A&T is if A&T is just simply not on their A game come Celebration Bowl. But yeah, there's no way that. And Cats won't lose this one. Well, we'll see. That's why they play the game.、Uh, we've got a great show for you.、Uh, first up, we're going to speak with investigative reporter, the great Nicole Hannah Jones, about her career working with the New York Times and that project she did earlier this year. You may have heard of it, the 1619 Project. Then we're going to talk to former Roden Fellow and reporter at the Miami Herald, Isaiah Small, about the late rapper Juice World. So. Let's get going. It's not often that the work of a single journalist makes headlines for months and leads the conversation about a particular event, especially one that happened 400 years ago. But earlier this year. Investigative journalist and MacArthur Genius alum Nicole Hannah Jones did exactly that. In honor of the 400-year anniversary of the first slave ships to arrive in the United States, the New York Times released a series of essays 
poems and a podcast called The 1619 Project. Hannah Jones spearheaded the project, which included writing that came from her and 16 other contributors, like National Book Award winners Jasmine Ward, sociologist and writer Eve Ewing, and New York Times opinion writer Jamil Bui. You can read the essays and the poems in the New York Times magazine. Now, the premise of the project is simple, but it stirred controversy. We'll get to that, but basically the project argues that the true founding of the United States happened when those first slave ships arrived in Virginia. And that legacy of slavery has impacted every aspect of American life. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Nicole's work outside of the 1619 Project. In addition to working with the New York Times, Nicole co-founded the Ida B. Wells Society for Investigative Journalism, which develops journalists of color. Uh, She co-founded that with a former New York Times reporter, Ron Nixon. Prior to joining the Times... Nicole wrote for ProPublica in New York, The Oregonian in Portland, Oregon, The News and Observer in Raleigh, North Carolina. Nicole, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me and for that very, very lengthy introduction. (laughs) Uh, Before we get into 1619, I wanted to ask you about uh, HBCUs. You've done a lot of work around school segregation and education. Everyone on this podcast attends or attended an HBCU. Uh, what do you think about HBCUs, and what do you think it's going to take for HBCUs to survive and thrive into the next century? Uh, I think that HBCUs are a tremendous asset to this country, and that no institutions are better equipped and more motivated and have as much compassion for the types of students that I write about. Um, We know that HBCUs serve a disproportionate share of low-income students, um, serve a disproportionate share of students who have not been adequately prepared by their high schools and their K-12 education, and yet manage to graduate students across majors, black students across majors at rates much higher um, than other institutions and to produce black people in professional fields at higher rates than other institutions, which, of course, tells you that it's never about whether the students uh, are motivated and talented and bright enough to succeed, but are the institutions willing to provide the supports that so many um, black kids need. So I just cannot speak enough about how important HBCUs are. With that said, they are doing this type of work while being systematically, uh, particularly state institutions, underfunded by the government. And um, what will it take is it will take uh, a country, our country, to finally at some point believe that the education and educational opportunities of black people are just as important as those of white people. And and I don't know when that day will come, but we need the proper investment in historically black colleges, and we've never seen that. Uh, Now, your reporting has carried you literally all across the country, from Oregon to North Carolina. So how did living in different parts of the country influence your views on race and the issues that you've investigated on? I mean, what you find out is black people are treated like black people no matter where you live. So this idea that somehow the South is the racist part of the country and other regions of the country are somehow egalitarian, um, all you have to do is see that I was writing about 
school segregation in Oregon. I was writing about school segregation in North Carolina, and I'm writing about school segregation in New York. And I grew up in Iowa and was bused as part of a school segregation uh, program. So I think what it does is quickly disabuse you of the notion uh, that racism is a purview of any specific region of the country and that you just see uh, whether you are in conservative territory, uh, liberal territory, north, south, east or west, rural, suburban, urban communities, um, anti-black racism is endemic uh, to the United States. The older you get or the older I get, the more you realize the tenacity of white supremacy. You know, you, mm-hmm. you see it everywhere. I mean, I, you know, my uh, lane has been sports and and uh, and jazz, and and you just see how deeply rooted, persistent, and tenacious it is, almost to the point where sometimes you know you almost say, "Damn, how are you going to defeat? How are you going to win?" Right. You get into this, and you've been doing this for a long time, and you you've been like you said, you no matter where you are, it's the same story. And it's, and it's relentless and it's tenacious. Where is the light at the end of the tunnel? <laughs> um, <laughs> is there a light at the end of the tunnel? I got, I mean, uh, <laughs> we all, as black people, we have to say yes, or else what's the point of getting up in the morning? You know, we have to say yes, you know, that there has to be. I mean, I look at my great, 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 you know, grandfather had no reason to be optimistic at all. No reason. You know, but yet he must have felt there was light at the end of the tunnel. So I'm just saying, you know, as you do this work and you do this great work, the investigations, other, what should be our source for, the, for these kids, you know, for the, the, the young people on the phone? I mean, what's, what's the source of inspiration? What's the, the reason for going forward? So I have two thoughts on this. I mean, one, clearly we can make progress and we all have to be fighting uh, to make progress, not just for our individual selves, but for our people. But progress is different from equality. And progress is different from justice, and progress is different from right. And I think we are always taught that we should just be happy if we're seeing progress being made. But after 400 years on these soils, I just feel like the time for incremental progress is over. We deserve equality. And that light, I don't think it's ever going to be at the end of the tunnel. Um, it just won't. So there's certainly we need folks who are optimistic and hopeful. I'm just not one of them. And that's because I just can't be hopeful for crumbs and progress. Like I, we deserve to be treated as full and equal citizens in the land of our birth. And I don't think that we ever will. With that said, we have an obligation to fight for it. And we have an obligation to use the gifts and the talents that we have um, for the benefit of our communities, even if we don't think we will ever see justice, we still have to fight for it. And I see my work as um, this is this is my obligation to my community, and it doesn't matter that I don't feel a sense of hope about it. Uh, it would be immoral for me to just sit back and live a comfortable life and not be trying to fight on behalf of our folks. Hey, uh, Nicole, this is East again, and you wrote about seeing your father, like, fly an American flag in your front yard as a kid and how, you know, it ultimately made you question what it means to be patriotic. So what else inspired you to do the 1619 Project, and what challenges did you face while creating this project? What inspired me to do the project was understanding that this 400th anniversary 
was likely going to pass in most American households with no mention or no notice, um, and that most Americans had never heard of the year 1619, and that it would just be rendered invisible, like so much about the story of black people in this country, and that it would be marginalized, like so much of the story of of slavery and its legacy in this country. And I really saw this anniversary as uh, the opportunity to force a reckoning, to not just say, let's acknowledge this moment in 1619, but let's look at the modern legacy, and let's show how what we've been taught is not the fact of it, And slavery was not marginal, but it was foundational. And until we confront that truth, we can never actually become the country that we believe we are. So so much of of my work in my entire career as a journalist has been trying to expose the architecture of inequality, the way that it is intentionally created, how it came to be, who are the people who are still upholding that. And the 1619 Project is attempting to expose that architecture across American life and, like I said, really force a confrontation uh, with the truth of who we are and hopefully from that confrontation at some point uh, a reckoning for what has been done. Hey, Nicole, this is Aaron. The New York Times recently uh, covered that story about the racist banking practices of J.P. Morgan, and it made me wonder, you know, what did you think about that? And also, you know, what didn't make it into the project? Because I feel like, you know, you covered so much ground, land ownership, music, healthcare discrimination, but I'm sure there is some stuff left on the cutting floor. I feel like <laughs> discriminating against black people is wrong, so... That's what I thought about the story. I thought it was uh, offered just because they actually had audio. It offered kind of a rare chance to actually hear the way discrimination happens. And I understand that for so many white Americans, they don't believe it unless they can hear it or see it uh, themselves. Just uh, simply saying that this is what happened to us is often met with disbelief. So I think it was powerful in exposing that. And I think, you know, we know... J.P. Morgan uh, has a long, torrid history when it comes to this. Chase Manhattan settled a huge lawsuit with the Obama administration over discriminating against black clients. So what it clearly shows is um, we are still fighting to be treated equally, both in the private and public sector in this country. As far as what didn't make it into the project, um, I mean, no project like this could ever be completely comprehensive, but I think we picked our best stories for what got in. I think the biggest missing piece in the project is um, an essay that is asking what is owed to the descendants of those who were enslaved. And There was supposed to be an essay that dealt with that in the original project, and for various reasons, it didn't happen, but I will be writing that essay now for the book project. If you read the project from cover to cover, and you see that it is not a history of slavery, it is a piece of journalism assessing the modern legacy of slavery, the ongoing legacy, and showing how still across uh, American life, black people are suffering under this legacy, then how do you come away with that without understanding that uh, a debt is owed and we need to figure out how to deal with that debt? This is a big question for a short amount of time, but uh, you you say that 1619 is a case for reparations. Uh, What's your vision uh, for reparations? So let me just start by saying I'm, I'm still 
reading. Uh, I'm reading extensively on this, so I'll have a better idea, a uh, better answer in some months. But I have a kind of good idea of what I think, in simple terms, reparations would look like. One is a cash payment. You look at the black-white wealth gap, it's approximately 10 to 1. What economists say is it would take approximately 261 years for black Americans to catch up to white Americans in terms of wealth, and that's if you hold white wealth steady. We were enslaved for 250 years, so it's literally almost a one-to-one ratio. So I think you have to have a cash payment to deal with that wealth gap. Um, The second prong of it to me is targeted investment into black institutions and black communities that have been systematically deprived of the ability to both accumulate wealth, but also to provide, I mean, you can look at HBCUs, for instance, right, to provide to uh, equal education, equal housing opportunities, that sort of thing. And the third prong would be a commitment to a strong enforcement of existing civil rights law. And there was that huge uh, three-year Newsday investigation about housing discrimination in Long Island and how rampant and bold real estate agents were in discriminating against black home seekers. And what you see is we actually have a decent fair housing law, but there's almost no enforcement of that. And we see this kind of across American life. We don't have strong enforcement of fair housing law. We don't have strong enforcement of the 64 Civil Rights Act when it comes to equal resources in schools. We don't have strong enforcement in some places of the Voting Rights Act. So that would have to be a third prong is to actually dedicate resources and a commitment to enforcing existing civil rights laws. And those three things at this point, without me having finished my research, would be part of a comprehensive reparations package. Hey, Nicole, this is East. Um, I know, as you mentioned before, you know, you're still constantly reading and still constantly doing research. But I want to know what are some just upcoming projects you may be working on and just what can we expect from you in the future? This wasn't enough? Damn. Um, <laughs> nope. <laughs> come on, come on. You sound like an editor. What are you working on now? Um I'm still working on 1619 Project, so we sold the project as a series of seven books. There's going to be four children's books, a reader's book, a coffee table book, and a graphic novel. So I'm going to be working on those projects. We are expanding for the book. We're going to be adding additional essays to the 1619 Project, additional work, so in much the way that uh, I serve kind of as uh a project manager overseeing the magazine. I'm going to be serving a similar role overseeing um, the book expansion, but also writing for the book expansion. Um, I also uh, am supposed to be finishing the book that I contracted for on school segregation that I have not finished yet either. So I'll be working on that as well. Uh, my question is real quick. You're super, super active on social media. Anybody that follows you uh, knows that. But you also respond back to a lot of people that um, they may be deemed like why people may look at it and be like, why is she even responding back to this this idiot? Uh, why do you why do you respond back to so many people on Twitter? Because I think that um, Twitter is democratizing, and I'm just a girl from Waterloo, Iowa, and at some point I was someone that people would consider a nobody too. And I never want to be that type of person who thinks I'm above it. I'm above responding to people because of how many followers they have or what their jobs are. Um, That's just not me. I think what is 
amazing to people. And one of the, the reason that people connect with me is they know that I'll talk to just about anyone. Now, sometimes, you know, if you talk crazy, I'll just talk crazy back and smack you down with facts. But to me, when I was younger and when I was coming up, the only way that you could ever communicate with journalists was you could write them a letter or you could write a letter to the editor or you could call them and they may or may not publish your letter. They may or may not call you back. And I think it's important that we engage with people who we want to read what we write and share what we write and engage with our material and not hold ourselves above them because I'm not above anyone. I'm just a regular person. Nicole, thank you so much. This has been this has been tremendous, and uh, you've got so much on your plate. We're going to have you back at least twelve times. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right, but thank you, thank you so much, and uh, just congratulations, uh, good luck, and uh, again, so this is deep appreciation for everything you've done. Thank you, and thank you for for all that you do to mentor and bring up uh, the next generation of journalists. I have long been uh, a fan and admirer, and I, I just appreciate how long you have have been working on our behalf. And to the students, I'm just very proud of y'all, and look forward to what you guys are going to do in the future. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll discuss the recent passing of rapper Juice World. Gerard Higgins, better known by his stage name, Juice World, died on December 8th, just six days after his 21st birthday. Uh, the rapper and singer suffered seizures shortly after landing from his private jet from Los Angeles to Chicago. Uh, law enforcement officers had been waiting for his plane because they suspected he was traveling with illegal guns and drugs. What happened next was bizarre and sad. A juice world swallowed multiple painkillers known as Percocet pills. Presumably, he was hoping to hide the drugs during the search. Juice World launched his rap career on SoundCloud and got famous in 2018 after he released the hit song Lucid Dreams, which peaked at number two on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100. Uh, on the line to speak with us about the late artist is former Roden Fellows, the legendary Isaiah Smalls. Uh, Isaiah is currently working for the Miami Herald as a general assignment reporter covering sports, music, and culture. Uh, welcome to the show, Isaiah. Hey, guys. Well, it's great to have you. It's great to have you uh, back in the fold, so to speak. Uh, I, I, Isaiah, uh, I want to turn this conversation over to the fellows, but what were your initial reactions when you first heard uh, the news of Juice World's death? I mean, I'm, I was sad, you know. Uh, like you said, he just turned 21. He's younger than me, you know, and it, and it sucks to see someone with so much talent, so much promise die so young. And, you know, just going back and listening to his music, it's it's sad, you know, because he talks about Percocets a lot. And you just want to you hope, that, you know, as a fan that they're handling themselves and conducting themselves in a you know right manner. But at the same time, they obviously have demons, 
eating at them, and it sucks for him to have to go in this way, especially so young. It was, like I said, so much promise, and, and I was looking forward to whatever he was, you know, going to do next. I mean, I was a, like I said, I was a fan, but uh, we can we can get into that a little bit later. No, I was going to say this is really sad, but it almost seems like a trend that, of course, you see, like, uh, Triple X and all these other rappers, when they get to, like, kind of the peak of their fame, you know, it just almost seems like a trend that, you know, they're taking away from the world, from things that they're doing with uh, inside their head and having the need to, like, take these drugs to suppress their feelings, like you would think, like, fame would take this all away, but... It's just so the reality that it really doesn't. And drugs are just so prevalently talked about in all rap songs that we, like Randall said, don't think about what we're listening to. We just find a catchy beat. But um, I wanted to know, Isaiah, for you, like, what do you think made Juice World like, himself unique? Like, his music, his artistry, or just, like, himself? I think he's a very talented in terms of with his singing, in terms of his song rap stuff and I, and I was a fan I, like I said I was a fan I think um, he was very very talented I think one of the craziest things videos that I saw after he passed was him just rapping off of, it was totally freestyling someone would just bring him an object and he would just include that into his rhymes and I think that's I mean that takes talent I don't think a lot of people can spit like that you know um, it's it just it's sad that people wasn't given the chance to be able to grow and become who we probably always wanted to be. Well, but, you know, as I hear you talk, and I don't know, East, what you guys think about what Isaiah said, it seems to me, you know, I'm hearing you guys talk about these people, and then I think about all the people in my generation, artists, who died mm-hmm. of older, you know, I remember, yep. I, I, you know, I, I'm a big jazz guy, and even when I was like 16, 17, that was, you know, Charlie Parker, I mean, just scores. Yep. Of musicians who OD, yeah. and then in the music, the popular music, there were men who OD. So it seems as if there was something about the, I don't know, entertainment or something that's just part of the drug culture. Maybe it's just that's the the dark side of being an entertainer that people are you know you're giving, 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 and you just have to continue to find ways to keep up and stay up. Uh, almost doesn't matter what what generation you're in. It seems like it's almost. Uh, that's the thread. I mean, it's like all generations suffer from whatever drug of choice there is in their particular time. This has just wiped out tons of young people. What do y'all think about that? I think journalists have a better view of a more a privilege in terms of understanding how these people operate. But at the same time, I don't think a lot of fans realize like how difficult it is to be famous. You know, you may be a fan of somebody, but then think about for every fan, there's probably like a hundred people that like hate them. You know, and on one side you have people, especially in the social media era, where where you can literally at somebody and be like, "Hey, you're trash. I hope you go die." Like stuff like that. That's totally uncalled for. But you know, we don't have to deal with that on a on a daily basis. And I'm the pressure. I I pray for like celebrities and artists all the time because it's it's sad you know because I, I i would hate to to be get to a certain point in my life and you've grinded and you've all what you've now starting to get money starting to, people starting to recognize you for your talent but then with that comes people that one hate you two like they don't understand there's also those fans that are just crazy with it like i remember one of the craziest stories i've ever read after mac miller passed was when a fan shared it. They saw Mac Miller at the airport. They were so excited, so happy to see him. But they could just tell on his face that, like, 
it's probably not the best time to run up to him and ask him for a picture. And in doing that, he just, they apparently they locked eyes and they just nodded. And you could the relief on Mac Miller's face was was out of this world, you know, just because he realized like, hey, I can be a regular person. And a lot of times we treat celebrities as like these godlike figures when in reality they're just regular people. They just have a talent. Like imagine if you you work at McDonald's and McDonald's like you worked at McDonald's and people were just always coming to your McDonald's because of you. You know, like that's wild. Like the fact that people like Kanye can't even go to like the zoo because people are always going to be taking pictures of them. And it kind of makes you feel like you are like an animal in a cage, you know, because anywhere you go, like it's difficult for you to go places by yourself. Simple things. Like towards the end of, I remember hearing this story about Michael Jackson. Towards the end of his life, he realized that he had never gone to a grocery store. So what they did was that they set up a fake grocery store for him to act like a regular person. You know how wild that is? Like, and I, and I think in dealing with that, like, the, it, that can only escalate the time that you already have, you know? And it's just difficult to deal with stuff like that. I think that's, I mean, before before East jumps in, I think that's one of the reasons I admire the way that Frank Ocean moves uh, so much. Exactly. Because... Uh, Frank Ocean's, I spent 10 weeks in, uh, in New York and I mean, everyone always says, you know, New York is this place where you can run into a legend any day. The day I arrived, Tyler, the creator was like a block from me. Um, wow. but obviously Frank Ocean, Andre 3000, all these, all these people who have places in New York. And I mean, you, you're literally, if you, if you know anything about hip hop culture, you're hoping that you just run into anybody. And you never run into them. And you never see pictures of Frank Ocean unless he wants to share them. You never hear news. The only time he comes around is when he wants to drop music. And I think that's part of, part of the reason is because it's a sanity thing. Uh, he's, he is a sensation. I mean, in terms of popularity and strictly fan base, I think Frank Ocean's fan base, like in terms of how much they love him, is probably one of the top five in the world behind Drake, Beyonce, Adele, Taylor, and Taylor Swift. And Kendrick Lamar and J. Cole, and I know that's not five, but it's uh, it's up there. Uh, just but just because of the way he moves, he doesn't drop music a lot. So when you do, you cherish it like gold. And it's like you said, everybody else doesn't really know how to move that way because they haven't been given the opportunity. Frank Ocean dropped, you know, Chan- uh, Channel Orange, and it was it was platinum. Everybody loved it, and not a lot of people have that moment where the first album you drop is going to be a classic. Most of the time, you have a hit. And then you have to capitalize off a hit. And that's, that can be very difficult to do because not all hits are expected. A perfect example is, is Silento. You know, he had a hit. We haven't heard from him since the hit. Uh, so it's, it's, it's uh, a difficult thing. Fame is not anything easy. And, I mean, other than Mr. Rosen here, I don't think any of us have really experienced that. <laughs> I, I experienced that. <laughs> hey, hey, you, you were going to, you were going to say something. Um, Isaiah, I did want to ask, what do you think Juice World could have been considered a legend, and if not, like what really defines a legend within, like, just the rap industry or any um, music or entertainment industry in general? Like, besides the passing of that artist, like, what really defines a legend? <laughs> So let me address your question in, in parts. Do I think Juice World's a legend? Personally, no. I don't think he was here for long enough. Um, and by here, I mean like in the public sphere, making hit after hit after hit, classic albums, blah, blah, blah. 
to be a legend. I think you have to say, have a significant offering to hip hop culture or whatever sphere um, that you're operating in, and that uh, you know offering has to play out in other people. Like you have to. Be, one, I don't think we'll be able to totally know if Juice was a legend right now um, because it's like I said, it's been it's, we haven't. He's only been he's only passed away what like two weeks ago, a week ago. Like it hasn't been that long. So um, in that sense, it's I don't think there's enough time has passed. But I guess my gut feeling is is no. But I mean that could easily change. I think we have the next generation. So yeah. I was gonna say I definitely I definitely see what you're saying because I feel like legend uh is something it's like how it's like how people talk about Hall of Fame with versus there was a conversation on first take a couple of weeks ago where they're like eh, Stephen A was saying uh Eli Manning isn't a Hall of Famer. He's just he's more of an opportunist and, and he was saying, you know, two Super Bowls but he has a losing record now, um, uh, so he's not a Hall of Famer. And we go back to music and, and things like that, it's like you have to have longevity, you have to have classics, you mm-hmm. have to have hits and things like that. And and to that, I definitely agree with you. On the opposite end, I would say that most times an artist dies outside of outside of things with domestic violence and, and things like that, you become a legend. Uh, a, a good example is, is Nipsey Hussle, Mac Miller. I, I have no doubt to the 16, probably 15 to 18-year-old range that Juice World is going to be something that they live off of because I would be very, very surprised if Juice World did not have a, an album come out after his death. I mean, look at XXXTentacion. He's had two or three albums come out after his death. Why? Because yeah. why not? I mean, people people still listen, and that's money to be made for the family. So I think I think to a degree, absolutely, I think that... Legend is something that, that should be earned, and in terms of the the current rap uh, atmosphere right now, I think there's five: there's Kendrick Lamar, Drake, J Cole, Young Thug, and Future that will be solidified in years to come because of the influence they have, the artists that they birth, and so on and so on. And there are some people who could debate and add a couple more, but those five are for sure going to last forever. Death, death is something that is always going to make somebody legendary, just because you you cherish them. Um, you cherish what you had. It's like I was I was explaining this to uh, a producer the other day. It's like if you're reading a book and you have the full book and you only get to read 30% of the book and then the other 70% vanishes, you're going to cherish the 30% that you have like it's your child because it's like, man, I really love this book, but I couldn't finish it because it burned. It's the same thing with artist death. So you're going you're gonna to cherish what you have, and ultimately that's what people do. Well, you're right. There is something attached to... Uh, a mystery or the tragedy of of youth never fulfilled. But um, on that bright note, we'll uh, I say we we uh, we have uh, and we got to come back, man, because you got to tell us about what you're doing with the Miami Herald and how you're loving it. Definitely, yeah, um, I'd love to. I'd yeah. love to. Hey, uh, Isaiah, before we let you go, how can we follow your work? Um, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Saint Claude. Uh, S-T-L-A-U-D-E-I-I, St. Claude II. Um, like I said, S-T-L-A-U-D-E-I-I. Great, great. Hey, well, hey, Isaiah Smalls with the Miami Herald and former Roden Fellow. Uh, thank you so much, man. We gotta have you back on because there's just tons more Definitely. we gotta talk to you about. But thank you so much, man. Definitely. I appreciate you for coming.
And now the segment of the show you've all been waiting for. It's time for Bravo and Nabro. My co-host and I will pick something from this week that we liked and some things that we didn't like. My Bravo uh, is uh, Lamar Jackson, who uh, last week broke Michael Vick's single-season rushing record for a quarterback, did it without getting banged up, and he led the uh, Baltimore Ravens to victory number 12. And it looks like the Ravens Express is rolling. With any luck, we're going to have two African-American quarterbacks in the Super Bowl for the first time, fittingly. Uh, I would say fittingly in the as we celebrate the 400th year of slavery, two black quarterbacks will be in the Super Bowl. The 2020 will be the, 200, the 401 anniversary. But uh, that's my bravo. Lamar Jackson, the, the Baltimore Ravens, and... Uh, Black quarterbacks. All right, guys. My Bravo goes out to the semester coming to an end. It's been a long semester. Tomorrow it ends. And I have actually two nah, bros. My first one goes out to my computer science class where we're teaching Microsoft Word, Microsoft PowerPoint, and Microsoft Excel. It's terrible. I don't know how I'm going to use these things. Like, legitimately, I'm, acting, I'm being a journalist right now. There's almost no need for me to use Microsoft PowerPoint in my current state. And my second number goes out to Dion Waiters. What are you doing? You, I mean, how many times can you be suspended in one season before you ultimately lose your job? What's going on, Dion? So my bravo for the week is not just necessarily the semester being over, but to my professors for coming in with these final grades and making them look a lot better than I thought they would be. My Nabro is for Lizzo and how she's been acting out here in the media and people trying to claim it's like fat shaming because of her size and really she's just being corny and it's just distasteful how she's acting. But that's just my Nabro. Well, that's all we have time for today. If there's anything you'd like us to cover or if you just want to leave us a comment, tweet us at the undefeated, hashtag Rodenfellows. You can also contact us directly. I'm on Twitter, at W.C. Roden. That's at W-C-R-H-O-D-E-N. You can follow me on Twitter at East Dockery. That is E-A-S-T-D-O-C-K-E-R-Y. I recently had a Twitter username change. You know, I want Twitter to free my name. It's R-A-N-D-A-L-I Williams. And that's, again, R-A-N-D-A-L-I Williams. Free my Twitter, man. Well, <laughs> thanks <laughs> thanks for listening to the Roden Fellows Podcast. Uh, the show is produced by the wonderful Aaron Matthewson and Arthur Krebs. Special thanks to Tarika Foster Brasby and the ESPN Digital Audio Content Team. I'm Bill Roden and I've been your host. Get all of the HBCU 468 podcasts as well as The Right Time with Bamani Jones and Morning Roast by subscribing to The Undefeated on the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Join us next week for another HBCU podcast, and don't forget to make The Undefeated your go-to site for a soulful look at sports and entertainment. Have a great week, everyone.